two years of underwriting deals in multifamily, and then finally finding one and then being persistent, even though it was taken off the market with the broker and then finally getting it. I mean, that's what's, I think, propelled me throughout my career. Welcome to the Real Estate Monopoly podcast. My name is Kerwin Donis. My brothers and I got into real estate investing to achieve financial freedom and help underserved communities in Guatemala, where our mom is from. Real estate is the vehicle we're taking to achieve our goals. And you can too. On this show, we share the stories of some of the most successful real estate investors to show you that you can succeed in real estate just like they have. Each episode, we deliver inspiring and educational content that will empower you to launch your real estate investing career and achieve your financial goals. Let's go. Matt Pichini is focused on developing passive income streams that enable investors to write their own story and choose how they want to spend their time. He specializes in revitalizing and elevating communities through real estate investment, community enrichment, and the arts. Matt was caught in a tough position when the dot-com bubble burst in 2000, but this pushed him to start his real estate investing journey. I want you to think back of where you were in the year 2000. Because for me, right after the dot-com bubble crashed, I was told by my landlord that I had 90 days to get out of my apartment. And I was working in the uh, in, in the IT field. I was in digital marketing. And all the dot-com bubble, I mean, it, it just it had burst. So everything was collapsing. So for me to find an apartment within 90 days that I could move into in New York City, where I was living at the time, it was like, I mean, that was like me climbing Mount Everest or something like that. Like there was, there was, it seemed like this impossible thing for me to do. What ended up happening was I ended up buying an apartment in upper, upper, upper Manhattan in an area called Washington Heights. And within a couple of years from that, I, I sold that property and quadrupled my equity in the deal. And it blew me away because I had never done any real estate before. And it, I, I just realized how powerful real estate was and said, wow, that, I need to get involved in that more. So I started doing that as a hobby. And so uh, for 10 years um, as a hobby from, from, uh, from you know, early 2000s, uh, I, I started doing real estate first as a, um, a, a primary residence. And then I bought my first apartment investment, uh, excuse me, uh, real estate investment in 2006. And that was a, a house that I actually, it was a piece of property that I bought. And then I built a house on it and started renting that out and learned a lot about real estate investment uh, when it comes to rentals. And then in 2015, so six years ago now, uh, is when I got involved in doing real estate full-time. And I got involved doing large multifamily apartment syndications. And um, that's, that's the nutshell version of uh, my story. As a child, Matt was exposed to real estate. His father was a realtor, but Matt didn't invest in real estate until later on. The first time in my life I ever heard about real estate was when I was a little kid, because my father was a residential real estate agent, and then eventually a broker for a number of years. And then he got involved in the food service industry and really did that most of my life. But that was my first exposure to real estate. And I remember specifically being a little kid and going with my father to a house that we owned 
but it wasn't our house. It was like a second house. And for me, as I think I was around seven years old, I didn't really understand why we had a second house. Like we already had a house that we lived in. And my father explained to me that this second house was a house where um, people would live and pay us rent. And so that kind of, I think at an early age, just got me the understanding that you could rent out an apartment. He ended up uh, selling that house. We didn't have it very long, Um, but it, it instilled, I think, in me the idea of, well, you can buy something and rent it out and make a profit. Um, now, I didn't do anything else in real estate for many, many years. As I mentioned, I uh, purchased a property for a primary residence, um, and we then sold that property about a little over two years later, and I quadrupled my initial down payment. So that, for me, is what really made me get interested in it. You know, uh, being able to create some some wealth. Um, so that I could, you know, I, I, at that time I wasn't on the path to become, you know, financially free, but I just thought, oh, extra income, extra retirement money, extra next egg. Um, but that then grew for me to then wanting to become financially free, free, uh, through passive income, but that happened much later. So, but after purchasing that first property and then selling it, um, I started looking, how, what, what's another way I could get involved in real estate? And then the, the, the best option for me was to buy a piece of property in Northwest Connecticut. Um, and I was planning to actually use that property as a, a vacation home for myself. And I would also rent it out to defray the cost. But what ended up happening with the property was there was a lot more demand for it than I had thought. And also circumstances in my life changed such that I didn't really need that um, that property. Um, I had a different property I could go to. Um, and so I rented that out and did that for many years and really learned about, <clears throat> excuse me, and I really learned about property ownership. I learned about renting properties, uh, being a landlord, and I was essentially my own property manager. And one of the things, my biggest takeaway from that whole experience, and there was a lot because I we went through the whole construction. I mean, it was, a, it was a raw piece of land when I bought it. But my biggest takeaway was that I didn't want to be a property manager, um, especially for short-term rentals, which is what I was doing there. It's a lot of work. Um, and I was doing it remotely. I, I lived about two hours away from where the property was. And um, I mean, it was a great experience. I learned so much. It set me on the path that I'm on today. <laughs> but if I had things to do, I would have done it differently. And yeah. and so that's what I was doing as a hobby. And then I started buying some properties and some fix and flips, and then eventually wanted to scale that up. And multifamily was really a way for me to be able to scale my business. Matt began his multifamily career when he bought a multifamily property in New York but he wasn't buying it as an investment property. I actually bought my first multifamily property back in 2014 because I bought a, a, a duplex. I bought a townhome in, in New York um, for me to live in. And I lived in, it was a two unit. We lived in one of the units and we rented out the other. So, you know, Technically, I guess that's multifamily, but when most people think of multifamily, they're thinking at least five units or more. And I got involved in that 
after I moved to Miami and decided to go full-time into real estate. And I started off by passively investing. I was looking for a deal. I wanted to do my own deal. But while I was looking, I also had some, some capital that I wanted to deploy. And I also felt it would be a really good learning experience to invest in some other people's deals and see how they run those deals. So I began investing passively in um, in multifamily, the first deal that I invested in was 77 units, uh, followed by a 295 unit property, and and so on and so forth. Um, and then um, it took me a couple of years to get my first deal under my belt, um, but the first deal that I did was a 132 unit property, and it was a, it was a, it was a, a nice a nice yeah. deal. <laughs> so yeah, it was good. As he began intentionally investing in multifamily real estate, Matt was thinking on a small scale. He didn't get into syndications until later on when he attended a multifamily syndication event. In terms of, you know, limiting beliefs, I think at the very beginning, um, I was thinking uh, on a much smaller scale. I was thinking about investing in, uh, you know, Maybe buying another townhouse in Brooklyn, um, or, or 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 something along those lines. Um, but my first introduction to syndication. So the thing that was holding me back, I think, overall, was how do I get the capital to do one of these deals? You know, I have to wait for some rich relative that I didn't know that I had die and like leave me millions of dollars, like in that movie Brewster's Millions or something like that. Like, how was I going to have all this capital? And I learned about syndication. I heard about it on some podcasts and I went to a, a seminar um, that was all about syndication. And I walked into a room with like, I think there was around a hundred other investors who were all involved in syndication or interested, but a majority of the room had done like at least one deal before. And I was like, wow, this is, this is incredible. And these guys are doing, they had us all, I remember being in there and they had every person stand up and say how many doors you have, you know, and I stood up and I'm like, I have, you know, three doors or something like that, you know? And then the next guy's like, I have 500 doors. I have a thousand. And I was like, wow. And I think after going to that, seminar, um, it was a weekend long thing. I changed or I guess got rid of the limit. I didn't even know it was a limiting belief, but it was of number one, uh, not having enough capital because I was like, I could work with any of these guys, partner up with them. They have access to capital and I have access to capital as well. Um, but number two, all these guys are, are taking down hundred plus unit deals there's so many people doing it. I met them and they were all regular people like myself. They weren't superhuman or anything. And I said, you know what? I think I can do this too. I, I had a lot of experience doing real estate just on a much smaller scale. And I had some parallel business experience as a uh, certified um, uh, project manager. That's that's what I did in New York for my career for, for 18 years. I was overseeing large um, projects with multiple personnel from multiple countries for hundreds of millions of dollars. And so I had managed people and projects, timelines and budgets, 
at this type of scale, actually small, uh, what the real estate stuff that I did actually at the beginning was smaller scale. So I knew I could manage it from a business perspective, but it was going to be a little bit of a reach from the real estate perspective. But I had that real estate foundation and background from the other things that I had done. I had some yeah. single family rentals that I had. I had the rental I talked about that that we built. I had the townhouse. Yeah, I had a, a lot of uh, experience that I think made the transition for me a logical step. It took Matt two years to get his first syndication deal as a general partner. The first deal he did as a general partner came after searching multiple markets. That deal, actually, the story of the deal begins two years before I got the deal, because that's when I decided that I really wanted to do multifamily. And I looked and looked and searched for a property to find. I wanted to find something that um, that was going to meet some pretty strict underwriting requirements. I'm very conservative with my approach. And this was going to be my first deal. So I wanted to make sure you know, if I'm getting my friends and my family, you know, beyond just my own money uh, in one of these deals, um, I better make sure it's going to work out. You know, um, So I was very cautious, I think, with my approach. Um, it, it ended up being really good. We, we ended up selling the deal and doing extremely well with it. Um, but I wanted to be pragmatic with the way that I was going about the whole thing. I was, I had searched in a couple of different markets. Um, and um, the market that I came upon was a market that I had been familiar with um, from back in my acting days. So one of the things we haven't talked about on this podcast is the fact that I was a professional actor in New York City for five years before I got involved in the digital marketing thing. So um, I had spent a summer in Kansas City and I was in my early 20s and I thought I was going to be going to this really boring town uh, for the summer and watching corn grow in the cornfields. You know, that that was my really narrow, naive viewpoint of what Kansas City was. And when I got there, I was blown away with how metropolitan it was. And I had one of the best summers of my life there. So I had a soft spot in my heart for Kansas City. Now, I had looked in two other markets I had been looking up in the Cleveland area. I had been looking in the Orlando uh, area, basically all over Florida. And I was living in Miami at the time. Um, and uh, But I had one of my best friends had moved to Kansas City. So I decided to explore Kansas City. And Kansas City right now is a super hot market for real estate. It's exploded, especially in the multifamily world. I don't know why. I've actually sold all of my, almost all of my properties in Kansas City because the uh, the prices have gone astronomically high, but at the time, um, in 2018, uh, things were okay. You know, I could, I could go ahead and, 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 and buy something there and the numbers made sense. I had been looking in that area. I had met with a number of brokers and property managers, and there was one property manager in particular that I really liked and developed a relationship with. And when I got to the final stages of underwriting on a deal, when I was ready to make an offer, I would review it with the property manager. And um, after reviewing yet another deal that once reviewing with the property manager fell apart, uh, <laughs> I, uh, she mentioned to me, hey, by the way, one of our clients is looking to sell their property. And I think it might be something you're going to be interested in. Would you like me 
to introduce you to the broker. And it turns out this was like one of the only brokers in Kansas City I had never met before. She had never really done any, I don't think she's done a deal since, um, honestly. And and she's great and I love her. I'd love to do another deal with her. She had um, this property for up for, for listing and um, I went after it. Um, I mean, I, I wrote a whole chapter in, 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 in my book about it, but basically um, what happened was the, the property was on the market. I put in an offer. All the offers came in around the same price as mine. And the seller ended up taking the property off the market because it wasn't what the seller had wanted. But through a number of circumstances that happened, I continued to talk with the broker about the property. And um, we, we meaning both me and the broker, uh, I, I was giving her some ammunition. She, you know, communicated certain messages to the broker. I mean, sorry, to the seller. And I think the seller realized that there was risk in continuing to hold on to their property. I mean, at the time, interest rates were, rate, were, were on their way up. So that may mean that cap rates would rise, which may mean that the valuation would go down. And so um, basically, they ended up deciding to go ahead and sell it um, to me. It, it never went back on the market. Um, so I was able to kind of snag it, uh, which was great. Um, and it was a lot of work after, you know, I got it under contract and then there was a ton of work to, to actually getting it across the finish line. And then even harder is operating it, but we operated it. It did extremely well, ended up selling it, uh, just a little over two years later. Um, and we beat our pro forma projections, which was fantastic. Um, and so that's kind of that story. Now as a multifamily syndicator, Matt has seen a lot of success. Even during the current competitive nature of the market, Matt is determined to stick to his investment criteria and remain conservative in his underwriting. I'm not pivoting, so I still uh, use the same um, criteria that I've used at the beginning um, in terms of the conservative underwriting that I'm doing. Uh, I'm finding it, it, it difficult to find deals. It, it's always been difficult for me to find deals. Um, that first deal that I did, I lost track. I think it was 117 deals that I actually analyzed. I'm not talking about deals that just came in my inbox. I'm talking about deals that I actually analyzed uh, full underwriting on before I got my first deal. Um, and so I still use a pretty strict criteria. You know, I, I'm invested right now in you know over 8,000 apartment units. And two thirds of that are deals that I'm a passive investor in. And I have a certain criteria that I look for as a passive investor. Um, and then the other third, you know, about 2,300 doors that I have are deals that I'm a general partner in, um, you know, and, and, and when I'm a general partner in a deal, I'm very, very involved. I do the asset management. I'm, 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 a, I'm, I'm very hands-on. And um, those deals, when I'm putting them together and it's something that I'm going to put out for investment, well, first off, I invest in passively in my own deals, right? So I'm going to want to make sure that it's going to meet my criteria <laughs> from that perspective. But I also feel that I want my people who are going to invest through me to have sort of that same criteria that I have. I want it to at least meet that level. So, I mean, I have very conservative metrics that I look at and historical metrics that I look at for things like, you know, um, our cap rate at sale, right? Uh, for rental growth for vacancy, for all those types of items. And, and I still keep it uh, at, at that at, at those same, roughly the same levels. I mean, you, you, things adjust over time a little here and there, but 
I'm not willing to compromise on that criteria to just just to get a deal. It doesn't make sense to me. Um, and so I, I hold pretty yeah. steady to to that original my original criteria. Every multifamily investor says they underwrite conservatively, but conservative underwriting can vary depending on who's doing the underwriting. Matt's criteria consists of certain metrics that take into account cap rates and historical data. I think it can look very different um, depending on, you know, how you um, learned about real estate, who you learned it from, and the guidance that they've given you. Um, you know, for me, I've worked with a couple of different coaching programs. Um, I also went to Boston University and did a full course of studies there. So I've I've had a bunch of different viewpoints um, that have been given to me, um, and and I've come up with a you know criteria that makes sense for me. And that doesn't mean that that works for everybody. Um, but those metrics that I had mentioned earlier are some of the things that I that I look at when I'm talking about rent growth, when I'm talking about vacancy, when I'm talking about um, the cap rates. Those are the types of things that I'm looking at. And I really want to see some historical data to back up my pro forma and my hypothesis. Because just because a market has had 12% rent growth for the past five years, you know, real estate market's been on its hair. You know, that's, that's 60% increase. And to say that that's going to happen for the next five years is is a very bold statement to make. I'm not saying it's not going to happen, but what I am saying is that your tenant base is going to have to change drastically to, you know, people are not getting those kinds of raises, right? I don't know anybody who gets a 12% raise every year. So if if someone's rent growth is 12% every year, it's like, how is that going to happen? And, and what is going to happen to your vacancy as you're turning over the entire tenant profile in the property? I'm not saying it can't be done. I'm just saying it seems, it seems um, sort of aggressive to me and not the kind of thing that I'm comfortable with. At this point in time on any of the deals that I've seen before, it doesn't mean that I might not see one that I do feel comfortable with that on, but um, I, I just, you know, the other thing is you have to look at the household income in the area to make sure it even supports that. You know, if, if your household income is, is you know, thirty dollars or $40,000 per year is your average household income, I don't know how you're going to get $2,000 a month rents. Like, it's just not going to support that. And so that that's a problem. And so that's something that I think people don't necessarily look at. So what I'm looking at, at my deals, I'm trying to take all of those factors and others into account to make sure that what I'm underwriting is going to be sustainable. Matt not only invests passively in other operators' deals, but he also invests in his own deals. Assuming the sponsor is credible and trustworthy, there are certain things to look for in an investment opportunity. Matt wrote a book on the subject, and he's created something for passive investors to use to make educated investment decisions. I have a book that really speaks to that, right? I mean, that's really what the, the, the whole book's about is how do you as a passive investor, and, and it does it through telling the story, it goes into detail of my whole narrative from, from the beginning, from being kicked out of that apartment all the way to where I am now doing air rights deals and 1031 exchanges. So it's got a little something for everyone sort of depending on where you are on the learning curve. But it, I, the main 
impetus for this was to create a resource for passive investors to be able to actually look at deals and kind of peek behind the curtain. Um, it's called the backstage guide to real estate. So you're peeking behind the curtain. It's kind of like a little nod to my acting background there. Um, and uh, really see what's going on behind all of those numbers and those assumptions and things of that nature. Um, and what I do is I break deals down into sort of three categories. Um, or, or sorry, three components, I should say. Um, there's the component of, of the sponsor, as you mentioned. There's the market. So you got to look at the market itself. And then you look at the deal, right? And so I break down all three of those and, and, and what to look for in them. You know, when, when you're talking about the deal, um, it's those components that we just talked about earlier, right? So what are those assumptions that are being made for rent growth? What are the pro forma rents? You know, what, what's happening? What are they doing with, with other income? What do the expenses look like? You know, all, all of those different components are parts of the deal that I look at. But I also want to look at the market itself and see what's going on in that market. Um, and, and do we, what is the household income in that area? What is the, the demographic trends? Um, do we see in employment growth? Uh, do we just have one employer? Is it a one horse town, so to speak? Um, or do we have diverse employment? Um, and I wanna really hone in on, you know, you have the, the entire MSA, and then you get even more into the sub-market. And, and I like to really zone in on that one mile. If you can, sometimes if it's a little too rural, you have to expand out to three miles. But I like to get into that sort of that one mile. What's going on in one mile of that property? What are the competitors in one mile? A lot of the times the brokers are going to show you a an offering memorandum, right? An OM. And they're going to have comps on it. But sometimes the comps are five miles away. I mean, they might as well be in, in, in France, you know? I mean, it's just <laughs> five miles away is a whole other country. I want to know what's going on right next to that property. There's that old joke. What are the three most important things in real estate? Location, location, location. And I think the more you can hone in on it is, is really important. And then, as you mentioned earlier, the sponsor, that, that can be the most important factor in a deal. I have seen great deals go horribly wrong because of a bad sponsor. And I, I have a chapter in my book about the first deal that I invested in that was underwritten. I don't think it was, I don't think it was underwritten properly. Um, but I had a, a, a sponsor who saved that deal. We should have lost money. We walked away with a, with a pro, a small profit, but a profit. And I credit that 100% to that sponsor. It was all him and he did a great job saving a uh, sinking ship. <laughs> Real estate can be useful for a lot of things, such as wealth building, housing, and economic growth. It can also be used for activism, according to Matt. That's an article that I wrote um, for Fast Company. I contribute some articles to Fast Company and also Forbes, and they're all on my website. Um, the, you know, my... <laughs> go into this in the book too. My impetus for getting involved in real estate when I got kicked out of that apartment, um, you know, this, this was the nineties and the end of the nineties, but still the nineties. And my, um, I had been an actor before, right? Which we mentioned. And I was really into the musical rent and in the musical rent, the bad guy is a guy who gets this, building that him and his friends used to live in. And he's demanding that they pay him the back rent or they're going to be kicked out onto the street. And I thought to myself back then, when I was trying to figure out wh what I was going to do, where I was going to live was like, you know, how, 
how come a lot of the times like these landlords are, are real jerks, you know, they're not, they're evil, right? And does it have to be that way? Do landlords have to be evil? And I, from back then, wanted to get involved in real estate to some extent, but wanted to be a good guy, wanted to be the good guy. And so that's something as I moved into eventually many, many, many years later doing real estate full time, I've wanted to change that narrative. I wanted to make ownership of property a positive for communities. Okay. And so I look at investment can be activism. What we look to do, we look to cure deferred maintenance on properties and then make the properties better. So we're fixing anything that's broken and then we're making improvements. It improves the lives for the people who live there and, and hopefully the entire community when we can. You know, you were talking about COVID. When COVID was going on, I mean, it still is happening, but it's not at the height, right? At the height of everything. We voluntarily, before there was any federal uh, eviction moratorium, we said, we're not going to evict anybody, okay? We're going to work with everybody. And that's something that we did even before COVID. Um, we, we are not in the business of kicking people out of their homes. We're in the business of keeping people in their homes and making sure that they get better services, that they have a better place to live, um, and, and being profitable. You know, I, I, I make no bones about that. I, I am in this for profit um, and we make a nice profit for our investors. But I think that you can be a very successful business person and also be a good, kind human being at the same time. And so that's that's what the article talks about. And it, 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 it talks a little bit about um, things that we've done for the environment too, um, things of that nature, because I think it's important for us to to change that narrative of the evil landlord. Persistence has helped Matt get to where he is today. It's a trait that he's had since he was young and he's cultivated it throughout his professional life. I think persistence has been the key to success. And I don't know how I learned it, but I had it from an early age. Um, I know this is a speed round, so I don't know if I should tell you this story or not, but I would say persistence yeah. is tell you the story. Well, yeah. so you know, the, the first time I, I realized the value of, of persistence is I, I lived in Florida. I grew up in Orlando, Florida. Now, now, Kerwin, have you been to Disney World? Yeah. Yes, okay. Absolutely. Good. So, so um, I used to work. Well, I, I wanted to get a job at Disney World. I, I, my sister, uh, my sister's really the one who wanted the 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 gig, and um, I went along with her to this audition and ended up auditioning myself. And there was like millions of girls and just a couple of guys, and so I, you know, I think I was lucky, and <laughs> I made it to the callback. And everybody told me, hey, listen, a callback's like if you go to an audition and you do well, they have you come back at a later date with a smaller group. Okay. So just for those who don't know what a callback is. So at the callback, before the callback, everyone told me, like, Matt, make sure you smile. You have to smile. Like they like smiles at Disney. So here I am. I was, um, I think I was around, I was either 11 or 12 years old at the time. And um, I'm sitting there at this audition all day with this smile, ear to ear grin. I mean, my cheeks were killing me at the end of the day. I was like, oh my gosh, like it's just, I was just there. And every time anybody looked at me, you know, I'm sitting there with this big, big smile and I did the audition and I ended up getting the show and it was awesome. And we went to rehearsals 
And um, this was like a show at the Magic Kingdom, like in front of the castle and everything. And so we go to rehearsals and my father uh, during one of the breaks, like went up to the director and he was like, look, I'm just curious, like, you know, um, why did you pick my son? You know, like just was, was there something? And he says, listen, um, your son did a very good job. I mean, he made it to the callbacks, which is extremely hard to begin with. And then, you know, we were there and it was sort of the final round and he was there and uh, he could do it. But you know what? There was like a bunch of other people who could do it just as well. But every time we looked at Matt, he was smiling and we could just tell that he wanted it so bad that he was going to work and do whatever it took to be great. And so that's why we chose him. And so that was my first lesson in the power of persistence and also in the power of a smile. <laughs> but um, it was something that I think stuck with me. And, and uh, you know, I, I have other stories about persistence as well, but other examples in my life where persistence has paid through. And when you look at, you know, two years of underwriting deals in multifamily, and then finally finding one and then being persistent, even though it was taken off the market with the broker and then finally getting it. I mean, that's what's, I think, propelled me um, throughout my career. Although Matt doesn't have an explicit vision for his business moving forward, he aims to continue to grow and serve as investors. I don't know what the future holds. I am in a position where I want to continue to grow my business, but I don't have any pressing need. I, you know, from a from a financial perspective, I am in in a, in a very good spot. So I want to do deals that are important to me, that mean something to me, that bring value to the investors. And so I want to organically grow that way, but it's not that I have a certain goal of, I need a certain amount of doors in a certain time. For me, it's more important to do the right deals um, and, and continue looking for them and, and working with, with good partners and with great investors. And um, that's sort of my MO. Matt is happy with where he is today in his life and business. He's now passionate about helping others realize the power of real estate and how it can help them reach their own personal and financial goals. You know, I feel like I'm in a really good place. And what I, all that I'm trying to do now is continue that and sort of share some of that. I mean, that's sort of the impetus behind that book is, is saying, hey, look, you you can be, you can generate passive income and, and whether you want that to just you know, have a, a nice vacation fund or pay for your kid to go to college or save up bigger for retirement or have that actually replace your current income, reduce your hours or completely replace it. You know, people have different um, motivations and, and different goals and things that they're trying to do. What I'm trying to do is help people who are on that path um, I'm not an educator or a guru or anything like that. I don't, I don't want to be, I don't propose to be. Um, but I think that I do have some knowledge from my experience that I can share with people. Um, and so I, I like to do that and try to help people and encourage them and, um, send them to, to good education, educators or mentors when I can. Um, and that, that's sort of my MO. And then for those who are really busy, uh, and, and don't really want to actively participate and just want to invest passively, um, to, to find great deals that they can invest in passively. Following your own path is a sentiment that Matt has embodied through his own life and actions. By writing his own story, he's proven that not only is going down an unconventional path okay, but also potentially necessary to reach your goals. I think that 
following your own path is really important. That's something that I've done. I've done my whole life. I mean, I was an actor for goodness sake. So <laughs> that's, that's a unique thing. Um, I think you need to find your own path. Um, it, it's funny. I just, I just wrote a, another article that was just in fast company uh, that that's about writing your own. I call it writing your own story, um, which is really that, right. It's finding your own path. What works for you? What are you looking to achieve and, and don't necessarily worry what other people are doing or how they're approaching it. Find the right thing that, that makes sense for you. That's, that's what I've been able to do. And um, I've, I found it fulfilling. It, it doesn't happen overnight. It takes a long time. If you want to find out more about Matt, here's where you can go. They can find all of that information on my website. And my website is pacheni.com. So it's P like in Peter, I C H. E-N-Y. So just go to pacheni.com. You can contact me through there. I love chatting with people about real estate, whether you've got zero doors or a million doors under your belt. Uh, I love talking about it. I've got the blog on there. I've got a newsletter, my book uh, you can get through the website. So just check it out, pacheni.com. Thank you for joining us today on the Real Estate Monopoly podcast. If you got value from this episode, please do us a favor and give us a good rating and review on Apple Podcasts. Or if you'd simply tell a friend about the show, that would help us out too. Make sure to visit our website at www.donisinvestmentgroup.com backslash monopoly, where you can subscribe to our newsletter so you'll never miss a show. If you want to avoid the top five mistakes passive investors make, you can also check out our free ebook by going to www.donisinvestmentgroup.com and downloading it. Be sure to tune in to our next episode. Until then, take care, guys. Mm-hmm.